So in any case, this morning, uh, we are going to be talking about uh, the autoinflammatory diseases, as Larry has uh, told you. And the title of my talk, Old Dogs, New Tricks, Autoinflammatory Disease Unleashed, uh, basically uh, uh, alludes to the fact that uh, actually the autoinflammatory diseases have been around now that we have recognized them for almost 20 years. The idea we first proposed uh, back in 1999 uh, with the identification of what turned out to be the second of the autoinflammatory diseases, uh, TRAPS. And at this point, we've learned a lot of new things about some of the uh, autoinflammatory diseases that have been around for a while. And there are, as you will learn, uh, a bunch of new ones uh, to talk about as well. And of course, uh, any autobiographical uh, uh, meaning of this title, Old, Old Dogs, New Tricks, is purely coincidental. Um, in any case, uh, just to have the uh, requisite slide, uh, I have no commercial relationships uh, to disclose. And let's just start out probably with uh, the first thing that at least some of you uh, need to hear about, and that is uh, the systemic autoinflammatory diseases. What are they, and why should you care? So, uh, these are a group of diseases in which uh, there are recurring episodes of seemingly unprovoked, localized, and systemic inflammation without the high-titer autoantibodies and antigen-specific T-cells that one would ordinarily see in the more uh, classic autoimmune diseases and, of course, without evidence of overt infection. These are disorders in which there can be dramatic evidence of inflammation. Uh, and I'll just uh, sort of whet your appetites, if uh, I may, uh, with uh, some images from patients that have some of the autoinflammatory diseases. So this first image is a laparoscopic view of the peritoneal cavity of a seven-year-old girl who has TRAPS, the TNF receptor-associated periodic syndrome. And this is a disorder in which patients can have prolonged, sometimes a month or six-week uh, episodes of fever uh, with serosal inflammation. And this particular patient had uh, recurrent episodes of sterile peritonitis. But these patients can also have pleural inflammation. They can have arthritis. They can have a skin rash, a number of different manifestations. And what you're seeing here uh, essentially are uh, adhesions uh, that have formed in the peritoneal cavity uh, as the result of these recurrent episodes of inflammation. Uh, and uh, these adhesions were lysed uh, by, the, uh, uh, by the surgeon performing the procedure. This second image is a magnetic resonance image of the brain of a patient who has NOMID the neonatal onset multisystem inflammatory disease. It's another autoinflammatory disease uh, caused by mutations in a different gene. And these patients can have uh, a hives-like skin rash. They can have uh, arthritis and other uh, bony uh, abnormalities. And most significantly, uh, they develop a chronic aseptic meningitis, which is illustrated here, all of the white uh, on this uh, MRI is basically evidence of inflammation of the meninges, and this can lead to intellectual disability, blindness, and deafness uh, in some patients. Uh, the next image is of a patient, a uh, Puerto Rican uh, patient, a young child, uh, who has DERA, one of the newer autoinflammatory diseases. DERA is an acronym for deficiency of IL-1 receptor antagonist. And basically, we all make uh, an endogenous uh, antagonist of interleukin-1 signaling, which uh, serves, at least in part, to turn off the inflammation that would be triggered uh, by IL-1. If you lack that, uh, you can develop a, uh, a disorder in which there's a total body postulosis, as well as arthritis, which is illustrated uh, on, uh, on this particular slide. Uh, and then finally, uh, one of the newer autoinflammatory diseases, one that we reported in the New England Journal a couple of years ago, a disease that we call DADA2. And DADA2 stands for Deficiency of Adenosine Deaminase Type 2. It's a disorder in which patients uh, present with recurrent fevers at an early age, but they can also have recurrent strokes uh, involving the deep brain nuclei. Uh, and it also can present with polyarteritis nodosa. And this happens to be 
a necrotic lesion uh, on the ear of a patient uh, who has uh, PAN. In uh, all cases, these are disorders of innate immunity, and that's part of the reason why this term autoinflammatory has kind of taken off. Uh, it's just the fact that whereas the autoimmune diseases are more disorders of the adaptive immune system that involves lymphocytes and receptors that uh, somatically mutate and rearrange, uh, the autoinflammatory diseases, on the other hand, are disorders of the innate immune system, which involves more of the myeloid uh, cells of, of uh, the immune system and receptors that don't somatically mutate or rearrange. So my first uh, exposure uh, to patients with autoinflammatory disease, although it wasn't called that at the time, was actually on the 14th of November, 1985. And I was a beginning rheumatology resident at that point uh, at the NIH. And uh, we had this new patient clinic uh, that uh, we would go to every Thursday afternoon. And I happened to see this patient who was a young man in his early 20s of Armenian ancestry uh, who had had, over the course of his life, uh, episodes, nearly monthly episodes of recurrent fever uh, with monoarticular or posi-articular arthritis. And I didn't know what this guy had. Fortunately, there was another fellow in the lab that I was working in uh, who was from Israel, who, when I described the case, said, well, it's obvious what this patient has. It's familial Mediterranean fever, dummy. Uh, and so, in point of fact, he was right. The patient did have uh, FMF. And just for those of you who uh, are not uh, FMF aficionados, just a little bit in terms of the clinical features of this disease, <laughs> FMF is a disease that's seen in people of Mediterranean ancestry, so Jewish, Armenian, Arab, Turkish, and Italians uh, are uh, high-risk uh, ethnic groups. And the patients present with uh, usually one to three-day episodes of fever with either serosal inflammation, and so they can have uh, a, a sterile peritonitis, and this is just an upright film of the abdomen showing air fluid levels uh, in a patient with an abdominal attack. They can have pleurisy from inflammation, sterile inflammation of the pleural space. Uh, occasionally, we see patients that have pericardial inflammation, although usually it's asymptomatic uh, in these patients. Uh, there can be arthritis, as the patient that I uh, first saw. Usually it's a non-erosive, non-deforming arthritis, although in a small percentage of cases, patients who are not treated with colchicine uh, will develop a chronic arthritis. And then there's a skin rash that's sometimes referred to as erysipeloid erythema because it looks a little bit like erysipelas. If one actually aspirates uh, the fluid from the joint of a patient with FMF during an attack, you see an enormous number of polymorphonuclear leukocytes uh, in the synovial fluid, uh, but it's a sterile fluid. And then over time, at least some patients will have the buildup of a cleavage product of one of the acute phase proteins, serum amyloid A, in certain vital organs, including the kidneys, sometimes the gastrointestinal tract, uh, even sometimes uh, the heart. So in any case, I saw this patient with FMF dramatic inflammation, known to be caused uh, by a recessive gene, but no one knew what the gene was or what it encoded or what the mechanism of the disease was. And so this uh, eventually led me to think, well, gee, now this would be a great thing to study. And maybe we could learn something really interesting about uh, the control of inflammation if we could understand uh, what actually caused FMF, what gene mutated, uh, caused FMF. And so um, this was back at the time of the beginning of the Human Genome Project, back in the 1980s. And so my thought was, as a rheumatology fellow, you know, if those guys can go after the gene for cystic fibrosis, which was one of the first genes to be uh, approached by the techniques of the Genome Project, then by golly, Dan Kastner can go after the gene for FMF. And so that, in fact, is what I did. Um, and uh, here's just the, the patient that I saw a little bit later. This isn't one I actually had first seen him. Um, and so uh, we set out to, to find this gene. I went on a field trip to Israel during the summer of 1989, 
collected blood samples from a whole bunch of patients and families with FMF. And basically the idea is that uh, uh, one looks for uh, DNA markers that will segregate in families uh, with uh, the disease gene in question. So doing that, we were able to figure out that in fact, the gene for FMF is on chromosome 16. And we published that actually in 1992. Um, and then we had the uh, fairly large job of actually figuring out what gene on chromosome 16 it was. And we actually had an interval of around 10 million base pairs uh, to look at, uh, and at that time, the maps that we now have and all of the sequence information that we now have was not there, and so we basically became the genome project for this part of the of, uh, chromosome 16, and we narrowed the, the interval down to about 200,000 base pairs. Uh, ultimately, we were able to figure out that there were 10 genes encoded in this region, and as our luck would have it, it was the 10th of the 10 genes uh, that turned out to have uh, mutations that uh, segregated with uh, FMF. But it was a dream come true. And the reason that it was a dream come true was the fact that this turned out to be, at least at that time, a novel gene that uh, no one knew anything about. Um, and uh, essentially then would give us you know, some sort of a foothold, uh, toehold perhaps, uh, in terms of understanding uh, uh, a new pathway of inflammation. And so we called this protein pyrin after pyrexia. At that point, there was a French group that was competing with us that proposed the name for the protein Mare Nostrum after the Latin for the Mediterranean Sea, Mare Nostrum. And uh, we had deliberately chosen a name that was short. We felt that anything more than five letters would be too much. Uh, and easy to pronounce and easy to remember. So nowadays, this protein almost universally is known as pyrin and not as marinostrum. In any case, it turns out that the N-terminal 90 or so amino acids of this protein uh, form a domain that is now known as the pyrin domain, not the marinostrum domain, but the pyrin domain. Uh, and uh, it, forms a uh, six alpha helical structure, uh, which allows for the formation of a charge dipole. And shown on this slide, uh, in the upper right, you can see that the uh, positive charges are in blue, negative charges are in red. And this distribution of charges allows one pyrin domain in one protein to interact with another pyrin domain in a different protein. So in the case of pyrin itself, it interacts with a, an adapter protein called ASC, which also has a pyrin domain which, through which uh, it interacts with pyrin. And then ASC, in turn, has a, another domain called the card domain, which interacts with castase 1. Castase 1 is the enzyme that activates interleukin 1 from its proform to its biologically active form. And so essentially, pyrin is upstream uh, in a cascade that allows for the activation of IL-1. And we now know that, in fact, uh, the mutations in pyrin uh, that are associated with FMF are gain-of-function mutations. We had originally thought that they were loss-of-function mutations that lead to the activation of something called the pyrin inflammasome. Now, I'm not going to go into all of the details of the pyrin inflammasome with you. Uh, in fact, this is a figure from a paper that we just published this last summer talking about the, uh, the details of how the pyrin inflammasome uh, is activated. But I guess there's a couple of tidbits that are kind of interesting uh, for, say, the uh, infectious disease people here uh, in the group. And that is that, uh, in point of fact, the pyrin inflammasome is triggered by toxins from certain bacteria that inactivate Rho A. Now, Rho A uh, is a protein that's found uh, on the inner side of the cell membrane. And you have to have Rho A in order to activate the cytoskeleton in white blood cells in response to various infections. And so some bacteria actually make toxins that inactivate Rho A. And so what are some of the bacteria that do this? Well, for example, the botulism uh, toxin inactivates Rho A. C. diff toxin inactivates uh, Rho A. Vibrio uh, parahemolyticus toxin in inactivates Rho A. So a number of different uh, bacteria do this. 
And they do this so that basically it paralyzes white blood cells so that uh, the host can't respond. And it turns out that if you inactivate GROW-A, then what happens is that in the end, you activate the pyrin inflammasome, which leads to IL-1 production. So that the pyrin inflammasome is, we think, an evolutionary adaptation to uh, uh, this kind of uh, bacterial uh, challenge uh, to the host. So in any case, uh, that's probably all we should say about this because we have uh, three hours more of autoinflammatory diseases to talk about. Uh, so in any case, but just a summary uh, for those of you who want the cliff notes with regard to uh, FMF. Uh, it's a disorder in which there are one to three day attacks of fever with serocytis, arthritis, or rash. Renal amyloidosis is decreasing in frequency, but it's still an important complication. The high-risk ethnic groups I've already mentioned, Jewish, Armenian, Arab, Turkish, and Italian people. The onset is usually in childhood, and so this is a disease that uh, pediatricians should uh, know about, but oftentimes it's not uh, diagnosed until adulthood simply because it's not widely recognized in the community. It's caused by mutations in this gene called MEFE, which encodes the pyrin protein. Uh, certain bacterial toxins unblock the pyrin inflammasome, which can activate IL-1 beta and IL-18. Not all patients with clinical FNF have two demonstrable uh, mutations, and that's partly because of the fact that these are gain-of-function mutations. So about a third of patients with bona fide FMF only have one mutation, even though it is thought to be or used to be uh, described as a recessive uh, disorder. Daily colchicine is usually effective treatment, and actually uh, colchicine works because it basically activates uh, GROW-A. And IL-1 inhibitors are generally effective in patients who are intolerant of or unresponsive to colchicine, and some of you may know that canakinumab which is a monoclonal antibody against IL-1-beta, was recently FDA approved for FMF patients who are unresponsive to or intolerant of colchicine. So let's turn to another patient, Christina. And Christina is a patient that I saw not 30 years ago or 31 years ago as uh, the first uh, case, uh, but instead that we saw maybe about 20 years ago when we were still in the middle of looking for the gene for FMF. And she was referred to me by an Irish anesthesiologist at the NIH. And he called me up one day and he said, you're interested in familial Mediterranean fever, fever right? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I have uh, a patient for you who has familial Hibernian fever. And Hibernian means Irish. And so he knew of this young woman uh, whose husband worked in the Irish embassy in Washington who had this recurrent fever syndrome that was called Hibernian fever. So I said, well, what the heck, Mediterranean, Hibernian, whatever, <laughs> I'll see the patient. Uh, so, so I agreed to see Christina, uh, who was 27 at the time, and uh, hmm, that's an interesting noise. Um, sewers are being cleaned up. Uh, so in any case, she uh, had a 14-year history of three to five-week febrile episodes. Now, remember, I said that FMF, usually the patients have one to three-day episodes of fever. And these patients with this other disease have three to five-week-long febrile episodes, at least some of them. And she had periorbital edema with her fevers and a migratory rash, which you don't usually see with FMF, and abdominal pain. And I saw her about a week after uh, she had delivered uh, a healthy baby boy. And during her pregnancy, actually, uh, she was totally free of attacks. But then uh, in the postpartum period, she had a doozy of an attack. And had high white count and uh, acute phase reactants, et cetera. And she responded to steroids, but not to colchicine. And you can see the family pedigree uh, here. Uh, and here is Christina. And she has uh, three brothers uh, who are affected, an affected mother, and an affected maternal cousin. So it looks like uh, a dominantly inherited condition with some uh, decrease in penetrance in the uh, uh, maternal aunt. Uh, so in any case, that got us interested. And once we had found the gene for FMF, we started thinking about these dominantly inherited recurrent fevers. And my former fellow, Mike McDermott, uh, who while he was in my lab, he didn't want to have anything to do with familial Mediterranean fever. He worked on the genetics of rheumatoid arthritis. When he went to the UK to work on the genetics of diabetes, 
he tracked down uh, a large Irish family uh, that in fact had this uh, disease and did linkage mapping like we did to figure out that the gene for FMF was on chromosome 16. And he found that the gene for this condition uh, was on uh, chromosome 12. Um, and so then he came back to my lab to do a sabbatical. We had by then found the gene for FMF and uh, we had this region on chromosome 12. And so to approach this, we applied the embarrassment test. Now the embarrassment test is a time-honored thing. And basically what you do is that you say, okay, well we have this region of the genome uh, with a bunch of genes in it, and by then a little bit more was known about the human genome, a bunch of genes in it. What gene would be the most embarrassing that if we spent five years looking for that, uh, and then it turned out to be this gene that people would say, well, why didn't you just look at that in the first place? So anyway, uh, the, the gene that rose to the top in terms of the embarrassment test uh, was this gene TNFRSF1A, which encodes the receptor, or one of the receptors, for tumor necrosis factor. And tumor necrosis factor is a major mediator of inflammation and fever in humans. And it, so it seemed like, well, maybe we ought to look at that. And so this was in, the, uh, in October of 1998, and on Thanksgiving Day, 1998, this was the first gene that we looked at. We had seven families uh, with this condition, and on Thanksgiving Day, we came in to look at our electropherograms, and bingo, all seven of the families had mutations in this gene. And uh, the mutations, in fact, uh, uh, for, there were six mutations that we saw. A couple of the families had the same mutation. Um, are mutations that affect the folding of the protein. And basically, uh, the uh, P55 TNF receptor has uh, four uh, extracellular cysteine-rich domains. It has a transmembrane uh, domain uh, uh, here. Uh, and then it has a, what's called a death domain inside the cell, which is just a signaling domain that's kind of like a firing domain. So in any case, uh, these patients have mutations uh, that basically substitute something else for a cysteine. And there are disulfide bonds that kind of hold together the folding structure of this thing. You, know, you have this loop-de-loop -loop kind of folding structure, and you have these disulfide bonds. And as you know, disulfide bonds basically go from one cysteine to another. So if you have a mutation that gets rid of a cysteine, you don't form the disulfide bond. The protein misfolds. Uh, and you have all sorts of problems, which I'll explain in a moment. So in any case, the really interesting thing about this, well, one of the interesting things anyway, is that we had families that weren't just Irish. Um, and the, the big Irish family that Mike McDermott had, had gotten samples from that he had used to map the gene to chromosome 12, it turns out that when we were able to do the, the analysis of it, the, the mutation actually came not from the Irish side of the family. It was a, a family with uh, a marriage of an Irish person with a Scottish person. It turned out that it came from the Scottish side of the family. And so it should have been called Caledonian fever uh, <laughs> rather than Hibernian fever. Well, at that point, we were you know, very concerned that we might precipitate some sort of an international incident. Uh, and so in order to avoid that, uh, we thought this was another naming opportunity. And so again, applying the principle that all medical names should only be five letters or less in length, uh, we came up with the term TRAPS, uh, which stands for TNF Receptor Associated Periodic Syndrome. And so uh, that's what we call it, and we're sticking to it. Uh, and so here are some of the features of TRAPS, which is a disorder in which patients have prolonged episodes of fever and inflammation. So I already showed you the uh, peritoneal adhesions. These patients can get pleural thickening from uh, recurrent pleural episodes. They can have a migratory skin rash, uh, which oftentimes is on the extremities, and it will migrate from one day to the next, like in this particular patient's case uh, shown here in the upper middle. Uh, the rash is on the uh, uh, medial aspect of the thigh one day, and then the next day it may be on the knee, and then the next day the calf, and the next day the ankle. And it doesn't spread, it's actually moving down the, uh, down the extremity. And if you do an MRI of such a patient during one of these attacks, you can actually see that the inflammation 
goes down into the muscle. It's actually a fasciitis rather than a uh, myositis. These patients can also have uh, conjunctivitis. They can have periorbital edema. And they, too, can develop systemic amyloidosis. This is a, a, a kidney biopsy uh, that's been stained with a monoclonal antibody to uh, AA amyloid. What happens? The mechanism of disease is kind of interesting. So I mentioned to you that there's this misfolding of, of the uh, P55 TNF receptor. Ordinarily, the P55 TNF receptor goes to the cell surface, and it's on the cell surface as monomers, and then a trimer of TNF comes along that causes the, uh, the receptor to trimerize. That, in turn, brings together several or three uh, death domain, domains intracellularly, which sets up a signaling complex that leads to the uh, activation of certain downstream signaling uh, molecules and the production of uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines. And these patients that have mutations in the gene, at least some mutations in the gene, will lead basically to the intracellular aggregation of the receptor so that you get constitutive activation of, uh, of the signaling complex. So in any case, just to, to uh, sum up on traps, what do you need to know? Well, this is a disease with attacks of fever, cirrhositis, arthritis, or rash that may last weeks at a time, although some patients may have shorter episodes than that, but uh, they can be uh, that long. There's this migratory rash. You can have periorbital edema. Uh, as distinguishing features. There's no ethnic predilection. The onset is usually in childhood, but again, not diagnosed until adulthood. Uh, it's caused by dominant mutations in the P55 TNF receptor. Uh, amyloidosis is seen in patients with more severe mutations. Colchicine is usually not effective, uh, whereas Etanercept, uh, which is uh, uh, one of the TNF inhibitors, and IL-1 inhibitors are effective in various settings. Monoclonal anti-TNF antibodies, generally, we don't use because they can, at least anecdotally, have been observed to exacerbate the disease. And canakinumab was recently uh, uh, FDA approved for the treatment of traps, so that is something that one can use uh, uh, with um, uh, the blessing of the FDA. So now let's talk about a third uh, recurrent fever syndrome, and this is a disease that's called hyper-IgD syndrome. And so in hyper-IgD syndrome, uh, the duration of the episodes is different uh, from FMF and TRAPS. Remember I said FMF, one to three days, TRAPS, prolonged, and uh, hyper-IgD syndrome is sort of in between. The attacks last on the order of three to seven days, something like that. And the patients that have hyper-IgD syndrome uh, can have a total body uh, maculopapular rash, as illustrated here on this uh, young child uh, with an episode of uh, hyper-IgD syndrome. They can have abdominal pain, cervical lymphadenopathy, um, uh, sometimes oral ulcerations. The attacks usually begin very early in life so that most patients have their first attack by the age of six months. And oftentimes, uh, the uh, first attack will be provoked by a childhood immunization. So in any case, turns out we weren't the ones that figured this one out, a group in the Netherlands uh, figured it out because it's common in the Netherlands, uh, that in fact it's caused by mutations in mevalonic kinase. So that's really something. You know, mevalonic kinase is an enzyme that's involved in cholesterol biosynthesis. So what should that have to do with periodic fever syndrome? And you know, the patients uh, have low-ish cholesterol levels, but they're not even below the limits of normal. So how in the world can that cause a recurrent fever syndrome? And that was a mystery for quite some time. And it's actually known that not only is this pathway involved in cholesterol biosynthesis, but it's also involved in the biosynthesis of uh, a number of other molecules uh, known as non-sterile isoprenes. And one of them is, is this uh, thing here, geronal. And it turns out that geronal geronal this is a test of how well you were paying attention to what I was saying earlier. So, geronal geronal is actually something that it, like, is, it puts an address on a protein, and it sends the protein to the cell membrane. And so, Rho-A, remember Rho-A, that thing that is inactivated by certain bacterial toxins, and if it's inactivated, that leads to the activation of the pyrin inflammasome. Well, Rho-A, in order to get to the cell membrane, has to be germinal germinal uh, And the germinal is right there. 
around the cell membrane. And if that doesn't happen, then you have inactivation of ROA. And remember, I told you that if you inactivate ROA, you activate the pyrin inflammasome. And that's actually the mechanism by which uh, this disease works. And so the circles just indicate the germinal germinal. So it's kind of an interesting thing that uh, actually we only uh, recognized within the last year or so that this was the case. Uh, the name hyper-IgD syndrome is a bit of a misnomer. The patients do have, a lot of them have high IgD levels, but not all of them. And the IgD levels do not correlate with uh, the severity of the disease or even whether the patient is in a fever or a remission. So it's just something that was noticed early on in the initial patients where it was described, but it's not seen in all of the patients. And so you might say, well, why don't they just change the name? And there are people who are proposing to do that. But of course, you know, uh, old habits uh, are hard to break. And so I think that hyper-IgD syndrome is probably the name that's going to be around for quite some time. So anyway, just uh, to sum up with that, the febrile episodes uh, these patients have are associated with rash, abdominal pain, and arthralgia. Lasting three to seven days, the patients can have cervical lymphadenopathy, and the attacks may be associated with childhood immunizations. Amyloidosis is actually rare in this disease. It's most frequently seen in northern European people, particularly the Dutch. The onset is almost always in early childhood. It's caused by recessive mutations in this level 1A kinase enzyme. Patients can have normal IgD levels, some of them anyway. Uh, and the mutations lead to decreased germinal germination uh, of rho GTPases and consequently increased IL-1 production through the pyrimine inflammasome. NSAIDs may be uh, effective for mild uh, episodes. Uh, IL-1 inhibition generally works well for more severe episodes, and again, canfinimab was just approved uh, for this indication. So now we're going to turn to the last of the recurrent fever syndromes uh, before we blitz through five new uh, diseases uh, that have been discovered over the last couple of years. So uh, the last of the uh, periodic fever syndromes that we're going to talk about, there's actually three of them that are all caused by mutations in the same gene. Uh, so the first of them is a disease called FCAPS, familial cold autoinflammatory syndrome. This is a disease where people will develop fever and a hives-like skin rash upon generalized exposure to the cold. So like if the person in the wintertime goes out in the cold, they'll break out in a rash and have a fever if they're there for like an hour or more. And you can actually elicit this by uh, ushering the unsuspecting patient into the cold room. You know, which of course, you know, would be a frequent thing that could happen in the clinic, of course. Uh, so uh, it's not true urticaria that patients have neutrophils in their skin lesions rather than mast cells. It's dominantly inherited. There's another disease uh, that was recognized as maybe related to this called Muckle-Well syndrome, first described by Muckle and Wells in 1962 in Derbyshire, uh, England. Uh, and these patients don't have cold-induced hives, but they have Hives, nevertheless, which sometimes can be induced by changes in temperature, but sometimes by stress and other kinds of things. These patients have sensory neural hearing loss, and what you're seeing across the bottom here are audiograms from one of our patients at the NIH. They have high-frequency hearing loss, and some of them will develop amyloidosis uh, over time. Hal Hoffman at uh, UCSD mapped the gene from both of those diseases to the distal part of chromosome 1, and then he, applying again the time-honored embarrassment test, uh, saw that there was a gene in that region that had a pyrin domain. And so he immediately uh, uh, focused on that uh, particular gene, and it turns out that it has mutations associated with both of these diseases. And it encodes a protein that he, at least initially, called cryopyrin, cryo for cold, and pyrin because it has a pyrin domain. And cryopyrin, uh, actually now, most people would call it NLRP3. And NLRP3 actually also forms an inflammasome that's involved in IL-1 activation. Now, at about the time that all this was going on, we were referred, my colleague Raphael Goldbachmansky was referred, this patient named Jonathan from North Carolina, uh, who was said, perhaps, to have systemic onset JIA, and I think he was around 10 or so uh, when we first saw him. So in any case, there were some things that weren't quite typical. He had this skin rash, which was kind of eyes-like. Uh, he had 
papilledema. Uh, he had some ventricular megaly. Uh, and he had these knobby-looking knees. And so what he actually had was not systemic onset JIA, but instead gnomon, neonatal onset multisystem inflammatory disease. And it turns out, as an inspiration to all of you residents and fellows, uh, that it wasn't I, it wasn't Raffaella, it wasn't any of the senior people who thought, well, maybe there's a connection between NOMID and, um, uh, and Muckle-Well syndrome. It was actually one of the fellows who had seen a patient of mine with Muckle-Well syndrome and also saw Jonathan and said, well, the rash looks kind of the same. It must be that these things are caused by mutations in the same gene. And so we said, well, what the heck? You know, we'll look at it. We did, and it turned out that this kid, Jonathan, in fact, had mutations in cryopyrin. And in fact, we then got samples from a bunch of other home patients, and sure enough, they did too. So in point of fact, uh, 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 all three of these diseases, familial cold autoinflammatory syndrome, muckle wells, and gnomid, all caused by mutations in this cryopyrin or NLRP3, which can form an inflammasome that activates IL-1 beta. That then gave us the idea, and this was Raffaella's uh, work, uh, to see whether or not an IL-1 inhibitor might work in this disease. And NOMID is a terrible disease, let me tell you. I mean, these kids are really sick. And one of the first patients that uh, uh, we saw from Houston with this condition was on a gram of decadron a week, uh, and it did not control his inflammation. And so we thought, well, geez, you know, we better do something, better try to do something for these kids. And so um, there was this uh, relatively new agent, uh, Anakinra, uh, which had been uh, approved for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. It's the uh, recombinant IL-1 receptor antagonist. Now, on the left side of the figure, it just shows how IL-1 ordinarily signals. The blue bubbles are IL-1. And basically, it signals by engaging the type 1 receptor and then an accessory protein in green and purple. And that causes an inflammatory signal to be uh, generated. The IL-1 receptor antagonist, which is what Anakinra is, will bind just to the type 1 receptor but not to the accessory protein. And so it competitively uh, inhibits uh, IL-1 signaling. So we thought, well, we'll try that. Uh, and we set up a protocol where we uh, looked at 18 patients uh, with NOMID with this condition. And it was just like flipping a light switch. It was miraculous. It was a vindication of molecular medicine if ever uh, we saw one. And so, you know, within a couple days of treating these patients, and so Anakinra, for those of you who aren't familiar, was a, is a subcutaneous injection. So you have to inject the patients every day. It only lasts about 24 hours, and the patients know it when it's starting to wear off. So it really is something you have to give every day. So in any case, uh, what you can see, the before and after, the hives-like rash goes away, conjunctivitis goes away within three months, the uh, aseptic meningitis goes away. For those of you who are cochlear uh, aficionados, uh, this arrow is pointing to inflammation of the cochlea, which goes away within three months as well. It's incredible. And we now have kids that we've been treating since 2002, 2003, or whatever, that are now graduating from high school, and uh, you know that never would have happened you know, in the, the natural history of the disease. One other thing that I'll just mention with regard to this gene is that you can have somatic mosaicisms. Now, why am I mentioning this? Well, first of all, because some of the patients with uh, childhood onset disease have uh, somatic mosaicism, and so if you do germline sequencing, you won't find uh, mutations in this gene. Schnitzler syndrome, which is an adult disease, uh, you can see it. And actually, you can have adult onset cold urticaria. And this relates to pediatrics because our first case that we saw of this was in a pediatrician from Philadelphia. So that's the pediatric connection. So in any case, it turns out that she has uh, a somatic mutation that's restricted to the myeloid lineage. Uh, and she responds to Anakinra. Uh, but she just has this mutation in uh, uh, monocytes and, and granulocytes and not in the rest of the cells in her body. So just to sum up with regard to these diseases, these cryopyrin disorders are uh, caused by mutations in NLRP3 or cryopyrin that are involved in activation of IL-1-beta. Cryopyrin is a key component in the NLRP3 inflammasome. Uh, 
these three diseases that I mentioned are all caused by mutations in this gene, and it leads to excessive bile and beta production. Particularly for NOMAD, uh, somatic mosaicism uh, is, is uh, common. And all three of these diseases can be treated with IL-1 inhibitors. And the milder diseases, namely FCAS and muckle wells, uh, canakinumab and rolonicept have been FDA approved for them. And for, an for uh, NOMAD, it's anakinumab. Anakinumab penetrates into the uh, CSF better than the other drugs do. So in any case, PFAP, well, this would be like bringing coals to Newcastle or whatever. You guys know all about PFAP, so I will just say that it is the most common recurrent fever syndrome in children. It's probably amongst the recurrent fevers that we see, uh, certainly uh, the uh, most clock-like in its regularity. These patients have uh, the almost uh, diagnostic uh, dramatic response uh, to corticosteroids, although sometimes the attacks uh, may become more frequent uh, on corticosteroids given at the time of attacks. Runs in families, but not in a Mendelian pattern, and it's been actually a, a disease that we've been interested in figuring out the genetic basis of for a number of years, but have not yet succeeded in that. And actually, the good Dr. Fader uh, last evening uh, 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 gave me some sequence data that he has that maybe we can compare notes and find something. Patients oftentimes outgrow the disease uh, by young adulthood. Tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy appears to be effective in a large percentage of patients. And if you don't want to go the surgical route, uh, these patients uh, also respond to intermittent anakinumab. So in any case, we are now in a uh, dilemma, the classic dilemma of Dan Kastner. And that is the dilemma that we've got a lot to talk about, but only, uh, at the most, 10 minutes left. And so we have a choice. Uh, that we, we could either talk about uh, this disease, could this be NOMID, but of course you know it can't be NOMID, or I wouldn't ask that question. It, it's DERA. Uh, so just quickly, you know, these patients get total body pustular skin rash. They can have uh, something that looks like chronic recurrent multifocal osteomyelitis. They can have vasculitis. Uh, the first patient was referred to us with the thought that maybe it was NOMID. Clearly it wasn't NOMID. But you know, even though we said clearly it's not NOMAD, the referring physician from Canada treated the patient with anakinra against our advice anyway. And here's the pictures of what happened. So the patient within seven days got totally better. You know, the, the uh, pustular skin rash went away, you know, shed his skin, doing great, you know, on anakinra. So what was that? Well, so we decided, again, the embarrassment. And, you know, this is really a great thing, you know, for you scientists out there. Just think about the embarrassment principle. So, you know, what would be the most embarrassing thing that it could turn out to be in this particular case? Well, if the patient responds to anakinra, then maybe it could be that the patient has a mutation in the IL-1 receptor antagonist gene. And sure enough, the patient did, and then we found other patients who did as well. And the thing that was really remarkable about this was that that patient had uh, a frame shift mutation on both chromosomes from both parents. And so we thought, well, how can this be? And then we figured out what the explanation was. The patient was from Newfoundland. And so, of course, and this is nothing against people from Newfoundland, but you know, Newfoundland is an island. And so, you know, a lot of people who live on Newfoundland are actually distantly related to one another. You know, the, the parents didn't realize that they were distantly related to one another, but in fact, the same mutation on the same carrier chromosome uh, from both sides of the family. And so we call this disease DERA for deficiency of IL-1 receptor antagonists. And then finally, PAPA syndrome is another of the diseases that one can talk about using the classical methods of, of, uh, of figuring out genes. PAPA syndrome is pyogenic arthritis with pyogenic and acne. Uh, so these patients can have idiopathic pyogenic, or idiopathic, it's genetic pyogenic as shown in the uh, upper left hand. They can have severe cystic acne. It's caused by mutations in uh, PSTPIP1, which is a fibrin-binding protein. So in fact, that links it to the whole FMF pathway. So now, in blitz fashion, we will talk about uh, how uh, uh, basically advances in DNA sequencing have revolutionized the field of autoinflammatory disease. And what you're supposed to see here is Moore's Law. You know, Moore's Law is this idea put forward by Gordon Moore 
uh, who uh, was or maybe still is the head of Intel, saying that you know computer processors would increase in their speed uh, and decrease in their cost, you know, by a factor of two, roughly every couple of years. And DNA sequencing sort of followed that line up until about 2007, and then you can see there's a dramatic departure from that as next-gen sequencing uh, took place. So basically, one can find human disease genes a lot faster. And so basically, you know, in the last couple of years, I'll tell you about five different genes that we found at the NIH, and there's more than that. That's just um, what I thought we might have time for. So the first case actually uh, goes back a while. Uh, so this is a patient uh, that was referred to us, thought to have NOMIT, a kid uh, who was referred to us back uh, in, oh, maybe 12 years ago from New Jersey, two-year-old girl, uh, recurrent fevers, catastrophic neurologic event, uh, was uh, paraplegic and incontinent from uh, her neurologic event. We checked to see if she had NOMIT genetically and looking at her MRIs and everything. And instead, she had multiple small strokes in the deep brain nuclei. We didn't know what it was. We treated her with high doses of steroids, cytoxin, and uh, anakinra, and she gradually got better. And then, about three years ago, we were referred this patient from Texas, six-year-old girl uh, with recurrent fevers and six strokes over the course of her life. So we thought, well, maybe there's a connection between the first patient and the second. So literally, we did whole exome sequencing on six people, the two affected kids and their parents. And doing that and analyzing the data, there was one gene that basically could explain the disease in those two kids. And that gene is a gene called CECR1, which encodes adenosine deaminase type 2. And uh, we published that in the New England Journal a couple of years ago. Here's just uh, some images from that publication just showing the small lacunar strokes in the deep brain nuclei in uh, some of our patients. These patients have a livido skin rash. They can have polyarteritis nodosa, as I already mentioned. Of course, this is a terrible thing. These kids get strokes like every two years or so on average. So, you know, it's really something, you know, to be taken care of a cohort of patients. And we've got like 25 patients now that we follow with this disease at the NIH. It's not, you know, the nicest thing in the world to be sitting on top of that kind of a, a landmine or whatever. So anyway, uh, based on talking to colleagues in Israel that had a cohort of patients with mutations in the same gene, almost always associated with PAN, and given the fact that these patients have perivascular TNF, we thought to treat them with TNF inhibitors. And basically, um, we've treated a number of them with this and uh, about 15 patients for this for these data. And um, in these 15 patients, before going on TNF inhibitors, they had 55 strokes over 1,173 patient months. Since going on TNF inhibitors, we've had about 370 patient months of observation, zero strokes. So it really does appear to be quite effective uh, in these patients. Also, if you look at sporadic uh, PAN uh, in adults uh, with Peter Merkel, We've looked at uh, 90 uh, patients with sporadic PAN. Three of them have two mutations in, in this gene, and three of them have one mutation, and we're looking for a second. So this appears to be, at least in some patients, a cause of sporadic PAN. So that's interesting as well. SABI, I think a lot of you know about. It's uh, a disease that my colleague, Raphael Kowalbachmanski, described in the New England Journal a couple of years ago, using the same techniques, using whole exome sequencing, basically. And it's caused by dominant, uh, usually de novo, gain-of-function mutations. Patients get a vasculopathy. They can actually auto-amputate uh, extremities uh, because of uh, this vasculopathy. And some of them, at least, uh, develop interstitial lung disease. It's caused by mutations uh, in this protein, STING, uh, that basically is involved in the sensing of intracellular DNA. Uh, which can be produced by DNA viruses, for example. But it's gain-of-function mutations in sting. It then stimulates uh, interferon, type 1 interferon production, uh, and uh, then activation of the immune system through that. So there's investigational studies of JAK inhibitors uh, in this disease. Another disease discovered by whole exome sequencing is a disorder in which patients get macrophage activation syndrome. It's caused by gain-of-function mutations in NLRC4. It's another inflammasome protein. And these patients get fevers, inflammation, and uh, at least some of them have MAS. 
Candle, yet another disorder uh, uh, that has been identified, the gene for which has been identified by exome sequencing. These patients get uh, fevers, they can have uh, paniculitis associated with it, and then lipoatrophy, and some of them uh, develop central adiposity. It's caused by mutations in various components of the proteasome, which is the intracellular trash can that gets rid of proteins that are uh, old and decrepit. And the first mutation was found in a gene that encodes the beta 5i component of the proteasome, but we've now found mutations in other proteasome components that either um, two of them or one of one, you know, mix and match, one of one type, one of the other, can lead to this disease. And then finally, the most recent of the uh, autoinflammatory diseases that we have described uh, is a disease, it breaks our five letter rule, but it was sort of a neat name. Uh, we liked it. Uh, otulopenia. It's caused by mutations in otulin. And otulin is a, uh, a molecule that puts ubiquitin chains onto uh, uh, proteins, and that pulls together signaling complexes. If you, so otulin actually pulls these chains off. The patients get recurrent fevers and paniculitis and lipoatrophy. Uh, and uh, so uh, Otulin is taking these uh, ubiquitin chains off, which causes the, the signaling complexes to fall apart. Uh, if you don't have Otulin, then you get too much of these uh, signaling complexes, and so that uh, leads to hyperinflammation. So that's it. Uh, the summary, we won't go through uh, because there's not enough time. But basically, these are the 10 take-home uh, messages. So maybe, uh, you know, they'll, they'll give you the slides that certainly it's fine with me if they do, uh, so that you can then commit these to memory. Uh, and of course, uh, these are the folks uh, in the lab that actually did the work that made all this possible. And then my colleagues in the clinic. Uh, we had a number of collaborators. This is the clinical center of the NIH. And then for your uh, nighttime uh, reading, if you happen to be uh, insomniac, uh, here's some things to read to help you go to sleep. So anyway, thanks a lot. <laughs>